Hey folks, welcome to The Tangent. This week we're interviewing Stephanie Gray Connors about her book, My Body for You, a pro-life message for a post-Roe world. Just so you know, during this episode, we touch on some topics that are a little bit sensitive. And so while we try to touch on them in a very kind and compassionate way, some of what we're talking about might not exactly be suitable for younger listeners. And so if you've got kids in the car, this might be a good time to just hit pause and pick up this podcast a little bit later. Enjoy the episode. My name is Matt Sparaza. I'm Father Sam Kachuba, and today on The Tangent, we're joined by Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie, welcome to The Tangent. Thank you, Father. It's a joy to be on. It's so good to have you here. Uh, Stephanie, you are a pro-life speaker, pro-life witness, pro-life apologist. Tell us a little bit about just your background in the pro-life movement and the work that you've been doing. Sure. So I was really raised in the pro-life movement. Uh, One of my parents' stories is that when my mom was pregnant, she thinks it was either my sister or me, but she's pretty sure it was with me back in 1980. In Vancouver, Canada, I now live in the States, but um, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, one of the uh, big leaders in the pro-abortion movement at its origins, who had ultimately converted first to becoming pro-life, and then uh, even though he was abortionist, he converted to pro-life and then converted to Catholicism. He came to Vancouver, Canada in around 1980, and my mom waddled in very pregnant and was so convicted by his presentation that she and my dad decided they really wanted to get involved in the pro-life movement. Mm. So when I was born a few months later and they moved to a smaller town, uh, they got involved in the pro-life society, the pregnancy center locally. My mom was a nurse. She volunteered at the pregnancy center. So I grew up amidst all of that, going Mm. to centers when uh, my mom would counsel clients. I would play with fetal models and doodle on letterhead. when her clients would give birth, I'd go to the hospital with her. And so I very much grew up in that environment. And then in my first year of university, a speaker also from the States came to Canada, a man named Scott Klusendorf, and he said, there's more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. Hmm. And I remember hearing those words and being really convicted that God was calling me to work full-time to save babies. So fast forward a few years, I finished my degree and I went into full-time pro-life ministry, which I did for over two decades and still consider to uh, do to a degree now, although I'm, I'm a busy mom as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, this work that you've done in promoting the cause of human life, it takes you all over the place. It's taking you all over the world. Uh, I was looking at just the list of places that you've spoken, uh, the list of people who you've debated. What have you found in your decades doing this work uh, to be the most effective, to be the most effective tool, the most effective argument? What's, Mm. What's the most important thing? Ah, great question. Well, on one hand, it's hard to pick just one thing per se, because we come up against so much and each individual that we will engage, whether I've done it formally in debating abortion doctors or informally in debating college students in front of a pro-life exhibit, each person is unique and they carry their own hurts and wounds. Um, And I often would teach people in my training that we have to look at the various pro-life strategies and approaches like being tools in a toolbox. And the great art is to know which tool to pick at the right moment. You know, if the if you have a nail, then you need to look for the hammer. But if you have a screw, then you need to look for the screwdriver. So I, I would say overall, as an apologist in the realm of education, I think 
the most compelling angle to come from overall is to make the case for the human personhood of the preborn child in order to establish their equality with the rest of us. And the idea behind that is we want to tap into the intuition the average person has that it's wrong to kill you or me and themselves. And then all we want to do is show how the preborn child is equal to you or me and that person in order to say, well, therefore, we should give protections to the preborn as you and I have have protections as well. Uh, but as you engage in conversation, there's multiple layers that that will become apparent and that you'll have to address as well. Hmm. Is there a, I mean, in your experience, right? And I know you say everyone carries their own particular wounds, but is there a, is, is there a wound that you find is really common amongst pro-choice like advocates that you've had to kind of dismantle an argument several times? I mean, for sure, what I sense is the common wound is complicity with abortion. And sometimes right. that is directly having had an abortion. Um, obviously, with the abortion doctors I've debated, it's having a lifetime and decades and decades of committing right. abortions. And then there is those who have permitted it by driving a f friend or a family member to a clinic, uh, have been silent when they should have spoken up. And it is the unresolved guilt that often puts up the emotional block and wall that prevents the person from being open to the intellectual reasoning that I'm trying to present through apologetics because of the emotional hangup. And so I have found over time, not, uh, not that I should eliminate the intellectual approach that I take, but I need to supplement it mm -hmm. with a compassionate curiosity where I ask questions like, I'm curious, where did your passion come from? Um, do you know anyone who's had an abortion? What has their experience been? And it's those more open-ended questions that then may cause them to share the personal experience that then puts more insight into why there's resistance and then gives an opportunity to try to minister to them if there's any any um, sense on their on my part that they they could feel open to some degree of regret you know um, trying to address that or even if they don't appear to to then share stories of people I know who do regret their abortions and have since you know found healing and use them as an example hoping that by telling their story down the road it could help this person if they're ever more open to you know repentance and healing so your ministry then and your your advocacy for life and for babies it sounds like you've always taken a more personal approach to, to really try to connect with the people that you're speaking to so it's not just about scoring points in a debate even though you've debated it's not just about uh, giving a lecture even though you've given very intellectual talks and, and tried to lay out the case really clearly, there's also that sense of each person individually comes bringing their own circumstances. So we can both say what's true, we can hold to that truth, we can recognize these things as, as being real, and we can still meet someone with compassion and with kindness. Absolutely, because yes, we need to win an argument, but at the end of the day, we want to win the person. Mm. And so mm -hmm. if you win the argument in a way in which you're snarky or dismissive, then if the person gets turned off of you, then they're not likely to ultimately be won over. Mm. So it really is this balancing act between holding firm to our convictions and not watering them down just when we face resistance, while at the same time showing the other person we care for them like we care for preborn children. And that was why, I, I mean, very much it was the Holy Spirit, but many years ago, 
Uh, before one of my scheduled debates, I felt a conviction that I should reach out to my debate opponent and ask them if they were open to doing coffee before the debate itself. Mm. And I said the one rule would be that we can't discuss abortion at coffee because that's what the debate is for. And the purpose of the coffee, I would suggest, is to get to know each other as people and build an atmosphere of mutual respect for each other. And I was very intentional about my words because I hate it when people say, oh, I respect your views because if someone's views are like immoral and totally a mess, you're not going to respect that. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> You should not respect their views. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone is made in God's image and God desperately desires the conversion of those who are pushing an abortion rights agenda. And so I can respect them as a person, as an image bearer of God. And so mm -hmm. uh, remarkably, ever since I began that practice many years ago, all of my debate opponents have agreed to it, to having coffee. Um, and on a few occasions, the times they didn't was just because of a scheduling conflict. And so that has meant I've sat down with abortion doctors when they've come from work to then enter into the debate. And um, they have revealed to me remarkable stories and experiences and insights from their life, which shows their human side, even though what they do is so animalistic and brutal. Mm. That's, I think that's a great openness to have to being willing to engage the person, even though what they do is wrong, even though we know that there's, that there's a problem with that. I, I've recently uh, come across these uh these little videos matt what are they called on social media when it's like the really short video a real a real thank you i, I don't know <laughs> no, i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> i'm like you father i am like <laughs> but I, i've seen these reels and father that's gonna, you're all over social just, media <laughs> it's gonna destroy matt forever now <laughs> yeah but i don't actually have to have to cultivate any of that it's just, I know, it's just I know. there you're in charge i know of putting i guess it all out i guess there. that's my job yeah yeah that's literally your job okay anyway so i've seen these reels where uh, it'll be somebody holding a microphone standing on a college campus and they're they're talking and they've basically got another microphone set up and the whole idea is just for the two people to shout at each other uh, or to or to disagree and it's always it's such a short video that you can't really see if there was any fuller context to the conversation that they were having but very often from whatever side of the issue the two people who are speaking are only able to really shout talking points at each other so there's nothing deeper and there's definitely no no personal connection now this is off with mm -hmm. you name the cause it's it's out there and a lot of it's kind of like trying to gotcha that kind of stuff but it strikes me as not being especially effective and yet there are tons of these videos out there so Maybe if we're just talking pro-life work, what do you find is effective and what is not effective? Because it seems to me that if there's something that's just like forcing arguments and we're just filming it for content, it's not really worth it. It's not really doing anything. It's not making any difference. But in your work and in the things that you've been doing, what is truly effective and what is truly ineffective so that we can abandon it if it's not really working? Right. Great, great questions. Because, and I, I think what's important about those questions of what's, you know, effective, what's ineffective is at the end of the day, we want to do things which change minds and save lives. We don't want to do something to make ourselves feel good because just 
acting towards justice, even if it doesn't actually accomplish justice, may give us a sense that, oh, I'm good and I'm doing something mm. great. But if we're not achieving the end result, then we have to say, whoa, wait a minute, this is actually about transforming society and building Christ's kingdom here on earth. So we, we should mm. be continually constructively critical about what we do, making sure it's bearing fruit and and the most effective fruit we can at least discern with the information that we have at the time. I can say from my experience, you know, professionally over 20 years, uh, a major kind of outreach activity I did was taking pro-life displays to college campuses. And it involved the controversial approach of abortion victim photography. And some people say, well, abortion pictures should never be used. Other people say they should always be used. And like I mentioned earlier about tools in a toolbox, we need to look at them as tools. And they're very powerful tools. But like any tool, if you have the screwdriver, if you have a hammer, you need to know how to use it well. And uh, the more powerful the tool, then the more strategic your approach needs to be. And so when we would take these pictures to college campuses, we would always ensure that our team of people working with us were very well trained in pro-life apologetics. So that it wasn't just a flash and dash per se, but we were then going to dive deep with the person that we were speaking with. We would ask them, what do you think about abortion? So instead of proclaiming our position and getting on a soapbox, we would try to draw out of that person immediately what their view was, which they would very quickly offer the average person, I'm pro-choice. Yeah. Sometimes I believe abortion is needed. Um, why are you pro-choice? Um, how did you come to that conclusion? In what circumstances do you think abortion's okay? And then that question would then lead them to expand their view, you know, or share their view rather even, even more. And so, um, not only were our team members trained then in how to handle those conversations intellectually, but how to also minister to the wounded as people would then start to reveal. And I, I mean, the number of people that I've met on college campuses who were victims of rape, who were victims of child molestation, who had had abortions, came from broken homes, you know, grew up on food stamps. I mean, the list is endless and the number of people I can't even keep track of because there were so many people that revealed their wounds to me, but that's because I was trained as the team was to communicate very sensitively and Socratically, where we're mm -hmm. asking more questions mm -hmm. than making declarative statements. And so I saw profound um, transformations occur, sometimes in the moment, not that the person after an hour and a half would leave saying, um, I'm 100% against abortion like you, but their disposition had transformed from being hostile and angry at the beginning to calm and pensive at the end. And then there ha had also been occasions over the years where a year or two later upon returning to that campus, we would run into a student who we'd spoken with you know, the couple years prior, and they then mentioned they, they were had a profound conversion mm -hmm. or years later they would email really? us um, I remember once um, a, a partner organization that I had worked with received an email from someone, I think seven years after he had protested the display, and he had uh, been involved pretty much in all the new age occult stuff. And then it had this, and so he was just so angry. And he even was a, an escort slash death escort. He would go to abortion clinics mm. and, and kind of quickly funnel women past pro-life protesters into the abortion clinic so they wouldn't hear a pro-life message and change their mind. So he was very angry when the exhibit came, but like years later, he contacted the group and expressed that he had had this massive conversion first to pro-life, then to Catholicism, even had to have like... Um, 
many exorcisms even over objects that he'd had in his home because he had been mm. so entrenched into the occult. Wow. So I just remember being blown away by a story like that. Like you never know as you interact with someone how the Lord can work over the years and then every now and then you get a glimpse. Mm-hmm. So maybe with that sensitivity, this would be just a good spot for us to pause for a second and r- remind everybody listening that the church is unambiguously pro-life and, and supportive of, of babies and, and life, uh, especially pre-born children, and pre- we believe in the dignity of, of every human life. We also believe in the dignity of every single woman and of every every woman who is pregnant and, and dealing with a crisis pregnancy or with, with some uncertainty. And we certainly want to be sensitive to, to those women. We also believe in the dignity and, and the beautiful gift of life that even women who have had abortions they they deserve that same dignity and, and that love. And I know very often from experience as a priest, man, I can tell you, the the weight that many women carry, and men too, for years and years and years, uh, it's a it's a genuine suffering that they carry. And so just to be sensitive to that and and compassionate to that, I think it's it's good for us to just put that out there. And actually, I'm going to come back to that with you later, Stephanie, because I have an, another question for you. But that's for later in the interview. <laughs> but for, for right now, just I think just quit teasing us. Father. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but just just to put that out there, I think it's really important. No, you've written this book, My Body for You, a pro-life message for a post-Roe world. Uh, you can get it through Emmaus Road Publishing, and um, in this, you're giving both your your advice for for what to do since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how people who are working to uphold and protect the dignity of human life and to promote the cause of life and to bring abortion to an end can, after the Roe v. Wade decision by the Supreme Court, or the overturning rather, um, in Dobbs, uh, how they can best approach this, this cause. But you also have some very powerful personal stories in here. Um, that I think is an incredibly important piece. You know, Matt and I—I'm uh, a priest. Matt is a, a married man and a father. Uh, here's my sense, and maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong. But but my sense is that there's there's always something a little different when he or I is going to speak about abortion and and the dignity of life. Uh, there's always something that will get thrown back at, especially at me, I think, more, more so than Matt. Matt at least has, has a wife and a kid. Um, but something will always get thrown back at me, which is you have no idea. You couldn't possibly know. Uh, because experience is so important, legitimately important. Obviously, we know that, abor- that uh, experience is not the only important thing, but there is something to that. And so, what I really appreciate about your book here is that you not only speak to the, the plain facts and the truth, but you also share your own story. So tell me a little bit about how your own experience uh, as a woman, as somebody who's working in the pro-life movement, as a wife and as a mother, has impacted your work. Mm, yes, for sure. Well, you know, with the Dom's decision coming out in 2022, at that point, I was a new mom. I, I got married later in life when I was 40 and was very blessed to get pregnant right away. Um, and then sadly, my husband and I lost our first child, Lele, to miscarriage. And then we got pregnant with uh, my now two, two-year-old daughter, Violet. And she was about, I think, seven or eight months when when the Dom's decision came out. And I remember thinking that uh, although I had these 
two decades of experience intellectually arguing why abortion is wrong and responding to abortion supporters that there was a whole new insight I felt I had as a mother having experienced pregnancy, pregnancy loss, you know, carrying to term. And and then subsequently, as I started then to write a book that would draw on both the intellectual experience I've had now with the, you could say, relational, emotional, um, lived experience, practical experience of becoming a wife and mother, that I wanted to put that in a book. And over the time of, of writing the book, I subsequently had three more miscarriages. And having experienced wow. pregnancy and pregnancy loss, as well as motherhood in general, its joys as well as challenges, I felt that that gave me some new insights that I didn't have um, when debating abortion supporters before. And it's not that, as you've alluded to, Father, we must have experience in something to be able to make a solid you know, case for or against something. I, I think, you know, one of the wisest minds and um, uh, individuals who had just incredible insight on human sexuality was St. John Paul II, who mm. was a celibate. Right. Um, so he didn't have the experience of marital sexual experience, and yet his insights on what it means to be male and female and to be in the communion of persons of a marital relationship and marital embrace is, is profound. So I knew that and know that you don't need to experience becoming a mother or a father to be able to reasonably and winsomely argue against abortion, that there's some additional insight and ability to connect with others that does come along with experience. And so I've found as I, even, you know, on another book I've written about infertility and the ethics of in vitro fertilization, uh, at the time I wrote the book, I lost only one child and I was recently interviewed by an in, uh, someone uh, doing a story on on infertility and um of course my position is consistent with the church that IVF is not ethical and uh when she interviewed me she said you know you've had a miscarriage but you've also had a child that's come to term you know some people might say well you at the end of the day you you lucked out you still got what you wanted and i was like actually i've i've lost three more babies since then so i've you know so and then suddenly she was like oh my goodness i'm so sorry and um so there's there's a, a ability that through our sufferings and through our experiences that we can build a bridge and connect to others. Mm. Yeah, I think th there are so many people who are suffering. And I wonder sometimes how much of the, the argument in favor of abortion is not really in favor of abortion itself, but is coming from that place of, of real suffering or a desire to alleviate the suffering that is visible because we can look around and see people in crisis situations or in situations where their life is one of suffering and we want to alleviate that. Yeah. I, yes. I, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Matt. I think well, I think that's a piece of it, Father, but I don't know. I don't think it's the whole piece of it. It like I, if, I agree. If that it's not it, the whole you thing. Know, You're right. I don't I don't know that you would get those videos of people yelling at each other in the airport. Right. <laughs> you know, just from out of that place. Although maybe, right? I mean, if it, because it is obviously like a true suffering, you know? Yeah. Um, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You. No, but you're right though. It's it's not the whole thing, but there's there's a there's a piece of it that's that's there. One of the things that, especially the, the earlier chapters of your book here, Stephanie, that I, I think is very moving is that your argument in favor of the dignity of life and the gift of life while you never shy away from making the connection with the Catholic faith, you're also very clear that to be pro-life is not exclusively something religious. In other words, this is something that we can come to by the use of reason. Uh, 
we can come to in our humanity. We can understand the dignity of human life from a scientific perspective, from a medical perspective. It's not just a religious doctrine. And so this is not purely something that is, well, because I'm religious, I have to say this, although I think that's true also because we're religious, because we believe we have to say these things. Um, talk to me about engaging with a secular audience, with a non-Catholic audience, and and explaining the reasons why human life in the womb is worthy of protection, even without using religious reasoning. Yeah, so that's one of the points I make in the book is that uh, for a good portion of my professional career, you know, I was in very secular environments, you know, speaking at Google headquarters or speaking on secular college campuses, debating abortion doctors in front of medical students. And the audiences there, some of whom may have had religious members in them, there were people of different faiths or no faiths also in attendance. And so it became the question of how do I communicate a message in a short window of time that can nonetheless convince them abortion is wrong? And so I think a case can be made using science, philosophy, and human rights doctrines to show that preborn children ought to be protected because scientifically, the medical community has established that preborn children are human because their parents are, and they're alive at fertilization because they're growing. And that although they're smaller, less developed, and more dependent, you know, in the early stages of pregnancy, a newborn child in comparison to an adult is smaller, less developed, and more dependent. So when we compare one human to another, we see functional differences or form differences. But what's consistent between one human and another is their nature or identity as being members of the human family, being alive and growing and so forth. So um, same with philosophically, you know, people sometimes argue that preborn children are human, but not persons. And they want to distinguish those two things. So they would say, well, a human is what you are biologically fine. I will concede the embryo is that. It's kind of hard not to concede that these days. Uh, but they will say, but philosophically, the embryo, even if human is not a person and therefore abortion is justified because they don't have that legal protection. And so then we need to ask questions like, well, how do you define a person? And where does that definition come from? And why should I believe that definition over a definition which says, all members of the human family are persons by virtue of being a human being. Um, so if you look historically at human rights violations, you've got the Holocaust, you've got women being denied the right to vote, you have black people being enslaved. And at each of these times, the group that's considered inferior was acknowledged to be a human, but not a person. They were somehow mm -hmm. inferior to the other individuals. So women inferior to men, blacks inferior to whites, Jews inferior to Aryans. Um, even if they're genetically human, the argument was they're not a person. And we look back at that and say, oh my goodness, that was wrong. Right. Your personhood shouldn't have been based on what the powerful in society said. It shouldn't have been based on your skin color, your sex or your ethnicity or religion. It should have been based on your membership in the human family. So that's kind of the philosophical angle you can come from. And then looking to human rights doctrines, you know, after the Holocaust, the United Nations, which is often, you know, understood, sadly, rightly so today as being very pro-abortion, in its origins, in its beginnings, it actually has some very profoundly pro-life statements mm. in its declaration. So its Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which came on the heels of the Holocaust, said everyone has a right to life and everyone is defined in the preamble as all members of the human family. So we need to simply show someone, if you believe in that document, 
then if I prove scientifically that preborn children are members of the human family, then according to that document, they have the right to life. Mm. Um, there's another document the UN has adopted called the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And it talks about a variety of things, including countries where the death penalty is legal. And, and it says in countries where the death penalty is allowed, um, it may never be done on a pregnant woman. And when I discovered that, <laughs> I was blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a profound admission by the United Nations because whether someone supports or opposes the death penalty, the debate there often hinges on how do we treat the, the guilty? Uh, should the guilty of certain crimes you know, be given death as a sentence? But both sides of that debate have unity on something and that's how we treat the innocent. And we all agree that we should never directly and intentionally kill the innocent, even if we debate about how we should treat the guilty. So the fact that a woman who's not pregnant could be in a country, commit a crime that's worthy of the death penalty and get the death penalty. Whereas in that same country, having committed the same crime, a pregnant woman would not get the death penalty is an admission that in the body of the pregnant woman is something that's not in the body of the non-pregnant woman. Hmm. And that is in the body of the pregnant woman is an innocent party, the preborn child. So even though both women are guilty of crimes, the same crime, one of those women have an innocent child in her body. And we all agree we shouldn't directly and intentionally kill the innocent. So by using human rights doctrines like that, we can appeal to people's sense of equality and fairness, um, how we ought to treat the innocent and tap into that and say, therefore, we ought to be, you know, yeah. morally concerned about the legality and, and widespread permissibility of, of abortion. Um, having said that, and of course, we'll unpack it more. As time has gone on, I have seen the need to really evangelize society and and incorporate a more overt faith-based message, hence hence the book My Body for You, which draws on, you know, paralleling the Eucharist with pregnancy and choosing life. Mm. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Eucharist there. Uh, since you, since you've brought it up, that was that was that was gonna be a question in a second, but let's let's talk about it now. Because <laughs> I think you you very powerfully bring the Eucharist and motherhood together. And on a spiritual level for Catholics, this might not be an instinctive thing to do. So uh, talk a little bit about the Eucharist, motherhood, and and how they parallel one another. Sure. Well, um, you know, I was starting to have insights on the parallel between these, um, but it was a very particular experience that drove home this idea for me. When um, my daughter was about six months old, my husband and I were at mass and um, she was starting to fuss and he was holding her and I uh, breastfed on demand. So I thought, okay, well, this will calm her. So he passed her to me and I sat down and um, I started to feed her. And so as I'm looking at her little face, you know, suckling on my breast, I'm listening to the mass continue. And at that very moment, as I'm looking at her and she's just latched to me, we're at the part of the mass of the consecration. Mm. And so father says, as he lifts the bread, you know, take and eat, this is my body given for you. As I am looking at my child literally consuming me. And I just felt such a strong conviction that there was a profound message here of Christ's witness of self-sacrificing love and of the greatest love of laying down his life for us that is reflected and mirrored in motherhood as well as fatherhood, but a total laying down of our lives. And I realized that I believe, you know, the most powerful words and messages we can convey are the words of God himself. And so I started to think about ways that 
communicating this is my body given for you could be reflected in the pro-life messaging when it comes to pregnancy and why abortion is wrong. And especially in the post-Dobbs world, it was just a couple months later, post-Roe, post-Dobbs, where the Dobbs decision came out and Roe was overturned. And what did we hear in the news time and time again from abortion supporters in reaction to the Supreme Court? My body, my choice, my body, my choice. And it was this very self-interested, self-absorbed mantra. And I thought, actually, the response we need to give to that statement and slogan is actually, no, my body for you, that the the greatest love that we can demonstrate for another is to lay down our lives. And we honor Christ who did that for us by paying it forward and doing it for others, such as our children. It's interesting because the sense of heroic motherhood or heroic fatherhood, any parent who sacrifices himself for, the, for their child, is it's so widely accepted and not just accepted but expected even. We, we expect parents to make sacrifices for their children, and when they don't make sacrifices for their children, we tend to think of parents who are like that as not being especially good parents, uh, as being selfish or even neglectful parents. So the, the most natural thing is that parents would want to make that sacrifice for their children. I wonder yeah. sometimes if the my body, my choice chance, uh, if that's really I, I i wonder i don't have no evidence i have no even anecdotal suggestions about this but i really wonder like how sincere can that be um when every woman who i've ever met who's been in a, a struggle in a, in a situation of pregnancy where they're afraid or where there's something else it's not so much my body my choice it's what do i do and there's a sense of they they want to be protected themselves. They but they're also looking for they have some sense of what what is happening right now in their body that there is a another life that is present there and they want to protect it. If if anything, my experience would always be that it's it's women who are in situations where they feel they have no other option that look to abortion, and that feel like they're completely backed into a corner. And so I've always felt like the my body my choice chant just doesn't it doesn't resonate now maybe that's because i'm a man and i'll never have to get pregnant or anything but something about it i i don't know maybe it maybe it's because in my experience talking with with women it's that's never been the reason that they've been pro-choice is it true that it's i mean so you said father that it's most common with women who feel backed into a corner is that true statistically i don't know Stephanie? I mean, I'm, no, I, no, I'm asking Stephanie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not asking you, uh, That's father. a good point. You probably, you probably shouldn't. I'm not the expert on this one. <laughs> so I think when you look at the statistics for why women abort in terms of the reasons given, they kind of have that big category of the majority seem to be the socioeconomic or lack of support Um And I think the mantra of my body, my choice is a reaction to having chosen abortion. Because Mm. once you've made that decision, it is so painful to come to terms with what you've done that then there becomes a justification. So even if it's not my body, my choice in the moment, it's it might be, oh, I had a hookup and I don't even know, or I had multiple hookups. I don't even know which guy's the father and I don't want any of them to be the father of my child. I want to be tied down to the any of those guys, you know, or if it's, you know, conception as a result of rape or, um, you know, someone was in a good relationship, got pregnant, and then when they told their partner, or the boyfriend or the husband or, you know, was like, no, I don't want this baby, whatever the 
motivations are for feeling distress in the moment that could then influence them to choose abortion. What we often hear is the mantra of my body, my choice, once the choice for abortion has been Hmm. made, when they don't seek out and receive the pro-life help that is out there, which is out there in great numbers. And some women do receive that help, but some women find that in this quick fix culture, abortion is going to be the faster solution and the immediate fix because I'll no longer be pregnant. Whereas receiving the help of a pregnancy care center or religious order like the Sisters of Life is going to necessitate continuing with the pregnancy and then either placing a child for adoption, which has its own emotional challenges and difficulties, or parenting the child, which is a lifetime commitment as a single mom that's not going to be easy. And so because the long-term uh, reality is is more challenging to consider in the moment, even though down the road, when you look back, would be more fulfilling and life-giving than, mm. than that quick fix of abortion. A lot of people, even if they, they could have support, are choosing abortion, and then they have to justify what they've done. And I think that's when we hear the mantra of my body, my choice come out. Mm. Yeah. I think if, well, if it wasn't for the fact that I was already uh, biologically, theologically, philosophically convicted that life begins at conception and needs to be protected in the womb. It would have been my first experience helping with a Rachel's Vineyard retreat, my first experience spending time with the Sisters of Life and helping them with one of their hope and healing retreats and talking to women who had had abortions, men who had been parties to the abortion. Uh, Those stories by itself and and alone would have been enough to make me pro-life, to say I never want to see a woman suffer this ever Mm. again. Uh, because the the pain that they carry is it's so real, and as you know, as a priest, you sit there feeling completely helpless because all all you're there to do is bring them mercy and and God's gift of forgiveness, and you want you want to build them up with with life, and to to fear to hear from them the just the utter pain that they've been carrying for so long, and then the sense that God can never forgive me like this fear that they're able to articulate that this is what's kept them away from the church for so long. And, you know, there I am as like the church's minister. And all I want to do is bring them back. <laughs> and and there's this fear that they, that they carry. That's enough for me to say, I, I just never want anybody to experience this because I see how painful it is. And I've seen it firsthand too many times. Um, yeah, the, the distress and anguish that a post-abortive woman or man goes through is, is profound. It is so deep because it goes against our human nature. You know, I, um, I remember even in my study of historical human rights violations, you know, the Holocaust, and then in comparison to the more recent Rwandan genocide, which happened in the 90s, I remember someone once remarking that with the Holocaust, it was typically strangers killing strangers, and that was still evil and terrible, uh, but they typically didn't know their victims. And what made an element of the Rwandan genocide even more horrific than that was that it was often family members killing family members. Mm. It was neighbors killing neighbors, former colleagues killing people they had worked with. And it was the relationships that were established that then being so brutally broken through murder that felt even worse because you expected more from the person that you knew Mm -hmm. and that had conveyed at one point they loved and cared for you. And so I think that's why it is just so heartbreaking for women and men to come to terms with having facilitated the abortion of their own child or their grandchild or a friend's child is the realization of, I was supposed to be a steward. I was supposed to be a nurturer. I 
I was supposed to be mother. I was supposed mm -hmm. to be friend. That was my role. And what I did was just so opposite of that. Um, now, again, as we know from the scriptures, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That that even God himself could look at Peter, who de you know denied Christ in his moment of greatest need, and then not only forgive him, but transform him and say, hey, you know, I'm going to make you the rock on which I build my church, <laughs> goes to show how much God forgives and has mercy and trusts and transforms us. Um, but it's not easy um, to come to terms with what we've done, even though God wants to draw great good out of even the darkest things we've done. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I think that... Um... I think that for Catholics, and 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 maybe I should throw the caveat in and just say, just me. Um, it's easy to stand back um, as like I'm not I'm not super involved in pro life ministry, you know, uh, and and look at either those who have gotten an abortion um, or even just generally speaking the pro choice community, um, and look at them and with with a lot of judgment with a lot of judgment. Um, and so I guess my, my question is, what's your advice for someone who, who again, is not super involved? In, and the answer might just be get a little bit involved, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but who's not super involved in about how to approach this topic, you know? Um, because cause it's easy to just basically point and go shame you know, it's so easy to do that. And it's obviously the wrong thing to do. Um, right. But yeah. How do you start? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the best places to start is to change our perspective on who we ought to be focusing on. And instead of thinking, I need to direct judgment towards those who are guilty of involvement with abortion, uh, we need to remember, we need to lend our voices to those who are victims of abortion to try to prevent their victimization from happening. So to think less, even though we will be engaging the people who are promoting abortion and have supported abortion and done abortions will be engaging them is to realize I ought to get involved for the sake of those who cannot defend themselves. And and that reminds me actually of a time I was participating in, in one of the pro-life exhibits I talked about earlier. And um, my team members and I were comparing uh, abortion to historical atrocities like the Rwandan genocide. And we were acknowledging, look, between every human rights violation, there always are differences. There, there's never one violation that's identical to another. But there are similarities, which if we can identify and learn from, could help us stop repeating history if that history is really bad. And so one of the points we were making is that at the time of the Rwandan genocide, the victim group, the Tutsis, were deemed to be inferior. They were called things like cockroaches. and while abortion is happening, preborn children are deemed to be inferior. They've been called things like parasites. I've debated abortion supporters who have called preborn children parasites. And so if it was wrong historically, our point was it's wrong presently. And so as I was making this visual message and engaging people verbally who were passing by, a woman stopped to talk with me and happened to be from Rwanda. And she shared with me that most of her family had been killed in the genocide. And the only reason she survived was she managed to flee the country before the most intense days of the genocide had broken out. 
And I remember suddenly becoming very self-conscious standing next to this comparison because I was now meeting someone who'd lost so many loved ones to such brutality. And I thought, does she agree with what I'm saying or is she offended by what I'm doing? And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, rather than wonder and just assume, why don't I ask her? And so I asked the question, I said, how do you feel about this message here? And she had seen the image, but almost like a glance at it. So she kind of stepped back and she just stared at the juxtaposition that we had on display for in silence for about 30 seconds. And then when she finally responded to what she was looking at, she pointed to the picture of the aborted child. And she said, that's worse because at least my family could try to run away. Hmm. And I remember just being awestruck by, by her insight. And it wasn't that in any way she was thinking what happened to her relatives was okay, but she was recognizing that when you have a victim group that is so totally vulnerable that they can't run away, they can't raise their voices, um, they can't defend themselves, they are entirely weak, that it makes an attack on them all the more horrific. And so for someone who's wondering, okay, you know, why should I get involved in anything um, to not think so much about the abortion supporters we might be debating, but to think about the babies that can't run away, that can't raise their voices. And even in that silent scream movie that Dr. Bernard Nathanson made decades ago, that that former abortionist I mentioned in in talking about my own story, um, you know, the silent scream was called that because when he did an ultrasound of an abortion, he saw the baby's mouth open up as though the baby was screaming as the abortion instrument was tugging at, at the child's limbs. But it was called the silent scream because that scream, even if the, the physiology of the body of the mouth opened up, nothing could be heard. And so these children are so totally innocent and so totally vulnerable. We need to raise our voices because of that Mm. and for them and make that our motivation, which then gives us a a more right ordered perspective, I think, as we as we talk to uh, abortion supporters. Amen. And it's yeah, it's a call to to uh, be humble, right, to rid yourself of your own pride. Right, because that would be what would stand in the way, and I'm 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 speaking personally, right? In that, like, it, it, right? This this, I mean, admittedly, going into this conversation, I knew, and even reading your book, it makes me angry, and it should make me angry because it's an atrocity, right? Like, it's it, the fact that the potential victim of the Rwandan genocide looks at the abortion victim and says that's worse. That shows how bad this is, um, but it's 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 prideful of me almost i mean maybe it's not father you're the priest but <laughs> it's prideful of me to to approach this situation and say well i'm so angry i can't do anything um i'm so angry i shouldn't read this book i'm so angry i can't pray outside planned parenthood i can't control myself you know i'll get, i will get too angry um you know and so it's that it's kind of it's almost like that I mean, I'm a I'm a physical parent, you know, but but a spiritual parent to these young children, insofar as, well, like, take yourself yourself down a, a notch, you know, and 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 humble yourself and go through that pain for them, yeah, 
you know, like Matt, humble yourself enough to read Stephanie's book. Come on, it's not that hard. I, know? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read none of it. I, I said I was angry while I was reading it. There not it in is. your words. <laughs> it's it's great, you know. But but I mean, but this is something that it. I mean, this is something right. Like in just full transparency, that my wife um, is really feels very very passionate about this topic, you know. Um, and I've had my fair share of that not really debates with with friends about this topic it just ends with me either getting too loud and raising my voice or storming out of the room because i can't believe it mm. you know and it's like well you know maybe maybe take that time to say well why do you feel passionate about this you know and meet right. them where they're at for their kids sake right even mm -hmm. if they're not willing to meet their you know do it for their kids sake you should do it you know i should do it you're already doing it, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, that's just something that really strikes me that it's like a call to humility. Is that a baby we hear crying behind you? Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, I'm like, since we're pre-recording and we can probably oh, yes, please, yeah. my husband has not noticed on the monitor that our daughter woke up and I- I'll tell you what, go, go take, go take care of that. Like, this is a pro-life podcast. Go take care of your crying. baby, yeah, yeah. I'm like, this crying in the background might be helpful. <laughs> I think, for what you're talking about. Well, it's funny but that it, it came up right as you talked about the silent scream. So go take care of the scream. I, know, I think it's right? perfect. <laughs> this is happening in real time, folks. Sorry, it's I'm the real so thing. sorry. No, no, do, do it. Do Please it, do go. It. Yeah, go. Right, it's go. great. <laughs> Father, I feel like only more of a dad in the fact that I also didn't notice. I was like, I, I heard it and I was like, I don't I don't know if that's if that's happening. And then I was like, Matt definitely has no idea. Matt has, has no absolutely no idea. One of the most amazing no things clue. to me and uh, was was I was at Malta House in Norwalk once. And mm -hmm. for our, our listeners, Malta House is a, a place where women who are in crisis pregnancy can go and have a safe place to live, get their education, have their baby, raise their child, and, and just get a, a leg up on, on getting themselves started. It's a beautiful place, one of the most powerful ministries that we've got. We'll, we'll link to Malta House also in the show notes so that you can support yeah. their great mission. Uh, but I was at Malta House once and I was talking with a group of the moms and the babies were off in the nursery and almost all of them were down for a nap. And at one point, one baby cried and I, I watched all the heads just kind of snap towards the nursery. And so all the moms are looking over there. And then with one voice, these women identified which baby it was and whose baby it was. <laughs> Right. It was like, it was the coolest thing that they all knew, not just their own babies cry, but each other's babies cries. It right. was the coolest thing. Right. And so they just, mom, whichever mom it was, got up and she went and, and took care of the baby. And it was, it was beautiful. I, I love that Stephanie had to go check on the baby. I think that's so Father, perfect. I, I got to tell you, I thought that story was going to go like this. I was at Malta House once and the babies were in the nursery and one baby cried and then 15 seconds later all the babies yeah. cried. That's what, that's where I No, thought no, that it's was nothing going. nothing like that. But hey Stephanie, welcome back. Hi, so do we want to speak to what happened in case people hear that crying and they're like, <laughs> Oh, we didn't stop recording at all. We just kept we yeah, just we went just, right through it. I yeah, think it's we great. We just plowed right through. Oh, it's, you yeah. guys talked Okay, awesome. Well, I'm oh, back. Yeah. Hi everyone. <laughs> it's so authentic. I mean, it's it's great. Um all right, Stephanie, one, one thing that I, I was thinking about here is um, as you make the argument and, and not argument, I, I don't want to say it because argument I think too often sounds like, I mean, it is an argument, but too often when you use the word, it sounds like something negative and confrontational. And that's, that's not what you're doing at, at no point, 
by the way, in this? Do I have the sense that you're the kind of person who's confrontational? Um, rather, as it says here, Stephanie Gray Connors is a uniquely wise and winsome voice. And I, I, I agree with what Lila Rose says there on the cover of your book. Uh, but you talk about encountering- He's a dear friend. Oh, really? I, I have her to thank for my husband. She set us no up. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I'm the world's awesome. worst matchmaker. The the one time I, I attempted to, to set up a friend for a date with somebody, um, it was two mutual friends of mine. And I said, uh, one of them said, do you think that she'd be interested? And I said, oh, you should definitely ask her out. I put in a good word with her. She agreed to go on a date with him. And a couple months later, she called me and uh, we were sitting down to have coffee together. And I said, so did you guys ever, ever go out? She goes, yeah, he should be a priest. And... <laughs> He's not a priest. They're both now married to other people, and oh. <laughs> everything's great. But I'm a terrible matchmaker. Is the the moral of that story? That's a, that's. A, I was hoping that they both went into the. Yeah, no, life. no. I've, I've never had that luck either. Um, where I, where I attempted, right, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That would be the other great stroke of luck. That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you, you talk about the the dignity of the human person, the gift of life, and the need for that uh, that very vulnerable population to be taken care of. And so here we've got this very, very vulnerable victim group, the unborn, who need that protection. One of the arguments, and, and perhaps the one that gets the most traction in the world, is what happens in the case of rape or sexual assault? What happens when this has happened, uh, to when a woman has been a victim this is not something that she's chosen for herself. This is not a, a loving relationship that she's in. This is rather, a, she is, she's been victimized by assault. And I think the, the hearts of many people are moved with compassion for the victim, this woman, to want to try to protect her. But you have some really important things, I think, to say, even to women who have been victims of rape and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we certainly need to acknowledge that what has happened to them is is vile and it's an evil and there needs to be justice done. Uh, the question is, um, who has committed the injustice for whom we need to, you know, make things right in response to? And the injustice is, the, the committer of the injustice is not the preborn child. The preborn child is a victim like the rape victim is a victim. Uh, the person who's committed injustice is the person who did the assault. And we then need to ask ourselves a question, would it be fair to give the death penalty to the innocent child, a consequence we as a society don't even give to the guilty party that has committed the injustice? So by responding with abortion, we're doing something stronger to one of the victim groups, the preborn child, uh, than we even give to the rapist himself. Um, I think another point we need to make is to draw on, you know, we've talked about the power of story and personal experience, to draw on the stories of people who have been victims of sexual assault and carried to term, because their witness is more powerful than any words that I could share mm. as to how it is possible to do the right thing even when it's really, really hard, even when it comes at personal sacrifice. And one of uh, the stories I, I really think is just so powerful in, in 
the world of people who have been victims of sexual assault and carried to term is the story of Leanna Robolito. She's a pro-life speaker I met when uh, we both spoke in Guatemala together. And when she gave her presentation, she spoke in Spanish. And when I gave mine, I spoke in English and I had an interpreter for the audience. So I didn't understand her whole talk because I didn't speak Spanish. And it was only when we were taken back to the hotel that evening and we decided to eat dinner together and get to know each other as fellow speakers that we shared our different stories with each other. And she showed, uh, shared with me that she had been raped at the age of 12, mm. got pregnant, and um, when she went to the hospital, the doctors offered her an abortion. And remarkably, at that tender age, she had the wherewithal to ask the doctor if having an abortion would take away all the feelings she had that she was dirty no matter how many times she showered. You know, would having an abortion take away the nightmares that she was experiencing? And so the doctor had to honestly answer that technically an abortion wouldn't do that. And in one of her interviews, Leanna said, then I just didn't see the point. She said, all I knew was there was a life in me that needed me and I needed her. And so she decided to carry through with that pregnancy. And in her testimony, one of the things she shares is that the trauma of the sexual assault was so intense, understandably, uh, that she struggled with suicidal ideation. And she said the only reason she didn't act out on killing herself was because she was pregnant. Mm. And she knew that if she committed suicide, it wouldn't just kill her life, it would kill the baby's life. And she didn't want to end the child's life. And so when she shared this with me, I remember exactly what she said. She looked me in the eye and she said, Stephanie, I saved my daughter's life, but she saved mine. Mm. And, you know, it's hearing someone who's been through such injustice and brutal treatment who nonetheless can have such a beautiful, right-ordered, self-sacrificing perspective that inspires me to want to proclaim that message, you know, but knowing that when she proclaims it, it's all all the more powerful, you know. So I think we, we need to remember that when someone has been a victim of sexual assault, they, they should never have gotten pregnant because they should never have been sexually assaulted, but we can't undo the past. We are incapable of going back in history and, and making something be undone that that had occurred before. Right. So once the rape victim is pregnant, the child is already in her body. So therefore the question becomes, do we bring the child out dead or alive? Mm -hmm. Because either way, at some point, the child needs to come out. But to bring the child out dead would be to commit another injustice, to inflict homicide on an innocent party, as opposed to bring the child out alive. And either the mother want to raise the child in the case of Leanna, or might choose that it would be too difficult for her emotionally to raise a child conceived that way and then opt for placing the child for adoption, which I mentioned in my book is the story of Ryan Bomberger, a friend of mine who's also a pro-life speaker. And he's a phenomenal speaker, very inspiring, uh, but he was conceived in rape. And his rape, uh, his mother, his biological mother, the rape victim, uh, chose adoption. And then, um, remarkably, the family that adopted Ryan, uh, the mother, his adoptive mother, had grown up in a in like an, an orphanage back back in the day. I think it was like oh, in wow. Pennsylvania where they had like a home for children that that didn't have homes. And when she was a young girl, she looked out the window one night and said, "God, if 
if you help me get out of this situation, I will help children that have been like me. And so she and her husband, so she eventually grew up and met a lovely man. And she and her husband, I think had three or four of their own biological children and adopted like 10 kids, including Ryan. And Ryan, now an adult, has gotten married and adopted children of his own. And so the the greatest way he has honored his biological mother who through her choice to carry to term after pregnancy from rape, she essentially lived out, this is my body given for you. He's honoring that self-sacrificing love of her by giving of his own life for the pro-life movement, for the children he adopted and saying, this is my body given for you. Powerful. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. As, as we're looking at these, at these issues surrounding abortion, we realize that it's, it's a more and more complicated issue. Once upon a time, the main argument was it's not really a human being, but science and our understanding of biology has just so blown that out of the water that even the the staunchest pro-choice person would not claim that the child in the womb is just a clump of cells or anything, as once upon a time they did. That was the argument like when I was a kid. That's what you would hear from people and that we're talking about abortion was whether or not it was really a human life. But we know scientifically when human life begins. And so that's no longer the, the question. But now given the constellation of issues that that face women, that face unborn babies, um, very often one of the pieces that's sort of missing from the discussion. Uh, and I think often we see this more and more in society, missing in society, is the father, the place of, of the man uh, as father. And so as you look out at the pro-life cause and at the world at large, what do you see as the need from, from men, from fathers? Mm, absolutely, that, that men step up into the fatherhood that they're ultimately meant to live out. And that's one of the, the points I raise in the book is that each of us at our highest level of maturity as human beings are called to maternity or paternity. We're called to be mothers or fathers. Um, that may be spiritual, as in the case of you, Father, uh, or biological, as in the case of Matt. Um, but the point is that we are all called to give of ourselves and to nurture another and help sustain the life of another and to protect and to provide. And so all too often the abortion debate, we have people who have opted for abortion because men have not protected and provided for their preborn children or the the women that are the mothers of those preborn children, whether they're girlfriends or, or their wives or even fathers having failed their own daughters who are in, in a crisis pregnancy. And so that's why in the book, um, one of the things I reference is a beautiful letter, a really booklet form that was written by um, now retired Bishop Thomas Olmsted mm -hmm. from the Diocese of Phoenix called Into the Breach. It's so good. And it's just this, it's so it's good. So solid. It's, it's just this beautiful reflection on what it means to be man and what it means to be husband and what it means to be father. Yeah. And, um, he has been a, a spiritual father to me. I met him years ago through my pro-life work and stayed in touch with him. And uh, ultimately, actually, he presided over the wedding of my husband and I. Oh, cool. Um, but he is is just a, a dear, dear holy man. And when I think of all the men that I've ever met who most are like Jesus to me, if I think, like, what would Jesus have been like, you know, if I was interacting with him? 
Bishop Olmsted always comes to mind, that mm. he is a man who, when you're in his presence, it's truly remarkable because, you know, you look at his his career as a bishop, he was very firm and unwavering. And where he saw injustice, he always spoke out against it, but also was profoundly humble, meek, gentle, sensitive. Um, and I also remember, too, going to events where I was speaking and often as a speaker, when you're with fellow speakers, you're like, you've, you've got a lot of other things that you have to do when you're not at your event. So often you'll get away when you're not speaking and you'll go to your, your room and you'll be writing when you need to write or responding to an email. Um, but you're not always engaged in being an audience member of the other speakers because you're there to be a speaker and then you've got other work you need to do. And I remember always being blown away by the fact that Bishop Olmsted always stayed fully present at an event he was at mm. and like sat in the front row or close to it and just took in the messages of the other people. So here was this, you know, here is this spiritual giant who knows so much, who could expound so much to so many. And yet he had this humble attitude of what can I learn from this speaker today? How can I carve out time to listen to this message? And so I, I just on so many occasions have been deeply moved by him. So I would highly encourage your listeners to read if they haven't already into the breach to really get a, a, a strong sense of what it means to live out parenthood, particularly fatherhood. And, and that's, that's what's so needed in our society. Amen. Yeah. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with into the breach being required reading. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I just looked it up. Don't worry. Good, good. We're going to link to it in the show notes. It's great. I had this experience once several years back. I was with the Sisters of Life at their house. They have a house here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, uh, their retreat house. And I was, I was there for something and they had a group of the women from uh, one of their holy respite houses. And the holy respite houses that the Sisters of Life run are for, for women who have had a baby um, or maybe are pregnant and need a place where they can stay. It provides a, a place. So we kind of kind of go beyond And Actually, maybe you can comment on, on this notion too, that the pro-life movement is only about up to birth, that the pro-life movement doesn't care about children after they're born. We're going to come back to that in a second. But anyway, the sisters are there and they had one of the moms and she's holding her baby and the mom had handed the baby to the sister and, and sister, I remember, turned and looked at me and she said, hey, father, here. And she hands me the baby. So I'm holding the baby and this little boy kind of looks at me and his eyes get real big and he's got this very confused look on his face. And his mom said, he's never been held by a man before. Because from the time that he was born, her doctor at, at labor was a, um, for, for the delivery, was, was a woman. Uh, she had been living with the Sisters of Life. And so it was only women who had ever been in his presence, really, other than I think he was baptized and it was a CFR friar who had baptized him but didn't hold him for the baptism, like mom held him for the baptism. And so I was the first man to ever hold this baby. And he was like mm. six months, seven months old. And it was the craziest idea to me that that could, that that could happen. Anyway, so I, I really see that need for men to step up and, and what a powerful need it is. Um, but let's, let's go back to that idea that the pro-life movement only cares about children until they're born. It's just a pro-birth movement. It's not anything else. Now, you and I talking to each other right now, we know that that's not true. But how do we respond to that claim? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we we need to get practical and share the stories of people or organizations that that go beyond birth to show that there is so much that's happening. And that's one of the things I wanted to feature in my book, like the Sisters of Life. I write about how much they do not only during pregnancy, but after women can live in these homes of respite in the convents with them um, for a considerable amount of time with their children uh, before moving out. Because what the sisters want to do is really not just uh, give a woman a fish, but teach her to fish. Mm. And so they want to spend that time helping her really flourish in her maternity and to be able to provide for her child and make sure that when she moves out on her own, that she is well equipped and still in touch, you know, with the sisters even beyond that. Um, I also cite examples of people I've met in the movement just time and again. The number of people that I know that have personally adopted children or fostered children. I remember once being at an event at a pregnancy center. Um, it was one of, I can't remember, it was like a Midwest state and I was brought in as the keynote speaker. And at the dinner time, I was just sitting next to one of the women that works at the pregnancy center. And she was this young woman in her 20s who was not married, had never been married. And she had a fostered, I think at her age in her 20s, over 20 children. Wow. And wow. she was adopting, I think she had adopted, was the process of adopting like two or three of them. And here's this girl, a single woman working at a pregnancy center and, you know, fostering and adopting. Yeah, so you know so, she's just rolling you know, in money too because she's working at a crisis right, pregnancy know, center, right? a nonprofit. Man. Wow. Yeah. So so there are so many people that I've met. I remember once meeting a, an evangelical pastor of a very large, one of these mega churches, as they're called. And it was the mission, he said, of his church to adopt or foster all the orphans in their community. And it wasn't just an idea. Like they were practically developing programs within their church to connect their parishioners. I mean, I don't think Protestants say parishioners, but uh, their church members uh, to these children in need in their community and people were responding and they had whole support networks set up to help these families then in this time of transition and support. And so... Uh, the the number of people I've met like that, I also uh, a former colleague of mine, he and his wife adopted three children from China, all of whom were abandoned, whether um, on a street corner, at a fire hall, all had, uh, the little girls had very uh, severe cleft palate uh, that required surgeries that because these American pro-lifers adopted them, they were able to give them access to the best medicine in the world mm. through the United States. And these girls had multiple reconstructive surgeries. And, and now, they're in their teens and and early adulthood and they're thriving and they're beautiful musicians and very intelligent and compassionate and virtuous and all because this pro-life couple uh, was willing willing to adopt them. So um, the idea that pro-lifers don't care about life after birth it can quickly be refuted with so sure. many cases of, of people that show they do care. Yeah. And much like the Sisters of Life, who uh, their ministry to women, and not only to, to women in the midst of the crisis, but well beyond that. If you go to a Sisters of Life mass where the they're having their vows ceremonies, I don't know if you've ever been to one, Stephanie, but they're... Not to the vow ceremony. But I've, I've visited oh. with the sisters, and they're amazing. Man, when, <laughs> when you go to the vow ceremony, you expect it to be this very solemn occasion because sisters are making their solemn profession of vows, and it's just screaming babies everywhere. It is the it's the most <laughs> joyful and beautiful thing you'll ever see because they're just 
they're packed and full of of all these people who have benefited from the ministry of the Sisters of Life, which is very much a ministry of life. And so there's crying babies and there's there's chaos and, and movement and everything. And half the time, like the sisters themselves are like holding a baby. Nobody knows where the baby came from. There's just suddenly a baby and the sisters got it. Okay, it's it's going to be fine. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. We have here in the Diocese of Bridgeport also, uh, Matt and I were just talking about it when you got up to check on the baby. Uh, we have, we have, yeah, we have a place called Malta House of Good Counsel in Norwalk. And Malta House was founded precisely for that purpose. I remember years back talking to one of the founders and he was saying that if we want to say that we're pro-life and that we don't want women to have abortions, we have to also give them the resources that are necessary so that they can make the choice for life. And so many of these women, the reason that they choose abortion is not because they actually want it. It's because they don't believe that they have anything else to offer. So they give them a place to stay. They give them the chance to further their education. They give them life coaching and job skills. They help them to get jobs. They help them to find housing. They help them to navigate this this whole world where so many of them have lived in poverty or in abusive situations for most of their lives that they've never actually been cared for. And when they're provided with the environment that says, we care about you as women, we care about you as mothers, we care about your babies, we want you to succeed and thrive, it's incredible what they can do. And so many of those women have gone on to college. And actually, just two years ago, they had their first Malta House baby who graduated from college. Oh, wow. Yeah. Beautiful. And so many of those moms never went to college themselves, didn't even have a GED in some cases. And now like the one of the very first babies from Malta House has made it all the way through college. It's just, it's such a beautiful thing to realize that Malta has been part of this kid's life for his entire life. And, right. and I think that's such and- a key thing. And how the cycle was broken, because if these women had had abortions, would they have been as motivated to go to school? I mean, that's what the line everyone always gives. Oh, I need the abortion so I can pursue my education and and get a good career. But would that be the case or would they have stayed in that cycle of poverty and stayed in the cycle of a broken family? But instead, it was the pregnancy where pro-lifers responded to with support that then helped the woman break free from the environment she'd once been in to create a new and better environment. And now you have a whole new cycle that's starting in the next generation that's that's flourishing in a way previous generations hadn't. Right, right. Yeah, and that cycle can be broken, thank God. <laughs> it's possible <laughs> to break that cycle, but it's going to take some work from, from all of us. So, Stephanie, as a, as a pro-life witness, as a pro-life worker, as a mom, as a wife, uh, you're doing all of all of this great stuff, and you're doing it. It seems both with the church because this is what the church teaches and does, but also very much you're doing this with your own sort of efforts and as your own apostle. You've got LoveUnleashesLife.com and and all of this work. What do you see as something that the church needs to do to support this kind of mission and this kind of ministry? What does the church need to provide? I think we need to ensure that our gatekeepers, which are our priests and our our bishops, um, are acting with courage. And courage is not an absence of fear, but a will to do what's right in spite of your fears, which means being willing to preach more frequently from the pulpit about mm. abortion. And you can do so sensitively, as you know, Father. Yeah. It is Sometimes people are so afraid that people will react poorly to a pro-life homily that they remain silent. Yeah. But the third option is 
people in large numbers won't react poorly if you communicate well. Okay. There will Can, still always be yeah. someone. Okay. Yeah, yes, I want to interrupt right you there ahead. because I'm sorry. I don't. I don't want, like want to interrupt you, but I. <laughs> you're anticipating actually a question that I had. So let, let me jump into that because you're, you're right onto this. And I, I think it's great. Normally we'd go off in tangents off topic. You're like bringing in topics before I'm even ready for them. This is so exciting. I love it. Okay. So I want you to just analyze my reasoning and tell me where I'm wrong and tell me where I'm right. I'm not sure if I'm right at all. Uh, I might be entirely wrong. You can tell me that that's okay. Uh, we'll still have you back on the show at some point or something. <laughs> all right. So as, as a priest, I'm thinking as I'm preparing my homilies about who I'm preaching to and and what mass I have this weekend, for example. And if I'm looking out there, I'm seeing where people sit. I'm seeing certain places, uh, certain seats, certain families. I'm thinking about the age of the kids. And so I want to try to say something that's age appropriate without provoking a conversation that the parents aren't ready to have with their kid. Um, I say to people all the time, my mother still hasn't forgiven Mike Tyson because when I was a little kid, he was convicted of rape and, and I saw the headlines and that's when I asked my mother what rape was. And and so yeah. she still hasn't forgiven him for that. Now, of course, that wasn't a, a church context, of course, you know, so I didn't have to have to do anything like that. But here's the here's the big question. All right, if I'm preparing a homily and I want to I want to preach this, I want to make sure that I'm sensitive to just the ages of the people who are involved. And so that makes it hard to speak about abortion in explicit terms. Mm-hmm. Um, that can make it hard to talk about the conditions that surround abortion and the, the reasons why a woman might feel that she needs to make that choice uh, or the suffering that she's gone through, the trauma that she's gone through. I might also be very aware of the fact that there are women who have had abortions who are in my congregation. There are men who have participated in abortions in my congregation. And I want them to be aware of God's mercy and love for them. And I start thinking about all the caveats that I want to put in the disclaimers before I say anything, that I want to be sensitive to this and I don't condemn you and and you're loved and you have a place here. And I start thinking through all of that stuff and I go, by the time I get through all the caveats, all the disclaimers and all like the, the lead-ins, am I going to have any time left to say anything? <laughs> So first of all, maybe I just have to get over that and and be willing to give a slightly longer homily, just like this is a slightly longer question. But do do you see like these are the, this is the calculus that a priest has to do. Um, Now in the situations when I've, I've had it come with the other part is like abortion doesn't come up in the cycle of readings, right? Not, not easily at least. There's certainly places where it's very clear we're talking about the dignity of human life. We're clearly talking about the dignity of the person and what justice requires. And so we can speak to what the church teaches about justice. And the first justice is the right to life. All Catholic social justice teaching is founded on that fundamental thing, right? But with all of that, like this is the, these are the, the interior debates that a, that a priest has. So am I right to be debating that way? And at what point do I have to say, we're just pulling out the stops and we're going for it, confident that God's going to do this the the right way? Yeah, I think it's normal and natural to have all those questions and concerns. And instead of being like, and therefore, because I have them, it's just impossible to do it right. It instead be, okay, God, so what is your amazing solution to this challenge, you know, and getting into adoration, being like, please make it an amazing solution for me. (laughs) With this week's readings, do you want me to speak to this issue and tie it in somehow? Like, even if you think if if it's the reading of the woman caught in adultery, Hmm. that 
you know, that reading about mercy and that Jesus, you know, didn't stone her and in fact said he was without sin, cast the first stone, could be an opportunity to talk about post-abortion healing and women who are caught not in adultery but having had abortions and we can use the term abortion and speak about it generally enough that people know what we're talking about without you know maybe young children um being particularly troubled by it there's also the balancing act there's a certain age of a child in church where things go will go over their head anyways or the parents can give a very simple explanation in response um and and then an age of the child where actually they have a strong sense of justice. So even like I think about the, uh, I once heard a, a pro-lifer talk about the age of nine being a very pivotal age in child development where when children learn things at that age, um, because of the strong sense of justice they have, it can be profoundly influential in their whole future. And I think of my friend Lila Rose, who we spoke of, who's a, a phenomenal pro-life witness. Um, when she was nine years old, she came across a pro-life book at her parents' house that had uh, information about abortion, and I think it was even pictures of uh, abortion, aborted children in it. And she was deeply moved by that book and asked her parents about it, and that was the turning point for her being convicted yeah. and doing things about abortion in her life. And I even think of, because I grew up in the movement, um, at very young ages, I knew what abortion was because of my parents' involvement. Um, so, so it actually can be quite an opportunity for conviction. Um, but like anything, it's, it's how it's handled. And mm-hmm. so I think through prayer and discernment, um, you know, we, we have to realize we, we can't cover everything, but we can still cover something. Um, there's there's a, a a great quote. Uh, it's kind of a famous quote. We always forget who said it, but it was like, "I am only one, but still I am one. I mm. can't do everything, but still I can do something. And because I can't do everything, I won't refuse to do the something that I can do. Mm-hmm. And it's that last statement, right? It's like I can't do it all, but all the more than I shouldn't stop from what I'm actually capable of doing. So this realization of I can't say it all, I can't address it all, should cause us to say, but all the more that little bit I can address, that little glimmer of of truth and hope that I can say, I ought to proclaim. Realizing also, as I, I've said, that in our churches, there are the post-abortive, but all too often the post-abortive are pre-abortive because there's a high rate of repeat abortions. Yeah. That a woman who has not repented, or a man, of their involvement with the first abortion, when they get pregnant again or impregnate someone else again, if they don't have an abortion the second time around, it will cause them to have to admit the first abortion might have been wrong. But that's so painful that it seems easier in the moment to just have another abortion in order to say the first one couldn't have been that bad if I do it again. And so then you get in a cycle of repeat abortion. So we need to view those in the pews who have had abortions who need to hear about God's mercy as being candidates for actually having another abortion. And our desire should be to stop it before it happens. Mm. So, mm. so all I, know, I never say, thought I of think, that. I never, yeah, I never thought about I I like, preventing this, this in the future. That, 40 to 50 percent of abortions are repeat so so i mean we're talking about large numbers of of people that if they aren't healed are going to cause more damage so a healed post-abortive woman or man can do such good but an unhealed 
post-abortive woman or man can do such evil. Mm. It's it's like an abortionist who commits one abortion. You know, and I will say the the abortionists that I've debated uh, have all been old. They all became doctors when abortion was illegal. And they all have told me of what it was like uh, working in hospitals when women presented with the complications from illegal abortions, you know, you know, um, feet of small bowel hanging out of their vaginas as a result of just brutal complications and brutal things that were done to them. And so these abortionists saw that they weren't abortionists at the time. These doctors saw that they rightly felt compassion for these, these women, but then they wrongly responded. And instead of saying, well, what can I do to not only treat them right now, but help women not choose illegal abortion and get support? They said, well, what can I do to make what happened to them happen, quote unquote, more safely? So then they do one abortion. And then you inevitably will feel guilt. But if you are feeling such guilt because a tiny innocent life has died at your hands, um, that can be so overwhelming that the one thing that you think will make you feel better is to do it again, to say, well, mm. then it couldn't have been bad the first time. And then you do it a third time to justify the first two times and a fourth time. And so before you know it, you're decades into into killing children. Um, because at, And then at that point, to admit what you've done as wrong is so totally overwhelming that you justify and justify and justify. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, I've never thought of it in terms of trying to prevent it from happening again to another person. That's a really helpful insight. Thank you. Um, given your own personal experience with pregnancy loss, um, something that I think a lot of people are looking for in the life of the church and many priests feel pretty ill-equipped to handle or to respond to is precisely the issue of, number one, pregnancy loss, but also the issue of infertility and couples that are struggling who want to have children. This, this desire for, for life, this desire for children, and the sadness that comes with either not being able to conceive or that comes with, uh, with, with miscarriage. And sometimes those two things are very much linked um, and sometimes they're, they're very separate. But that pain that's, that's so very, very real for people. How can the church respond? How can priests really step into that and walk with people in that in that pain? Yeah, I think the real key is to walk with and to remember the priest is father. Hmm. And so to think, what would a good father do? And and I see this in my own husband, who I always say is is the best husband in the world and the best father in the world. And and I mean it sincerely. I I, I say I have married a saint. His name is Joseph, and I have married Saint Joseph. <laughs> uh, he he truly is an amazing man. But when I see him father our daughter, and when she like when she can get upset, and she's strong willed like her mother, <laughs> and so she has a bit of a temper. And then I have a temper. And so when she's upset, I can get upset. My husband is so calm and he's so soothing and he can just knows how to sit with her um, and talk through things sometimes later and not in the moment because he's very aware. Look, her, her brain is just at this point firing off all kinds of things. So to realize, okay, when, when people in my church are suffering, 
How do I be a father to them? When their emotions are going crazy, how do I sit with them? How do I listen to them? How do I realize it's not just in one setting? Like, like my husband might not address something in the moment because he knows Violet is going to be more receptive when the emotions are less to realize if you're talking to a couple that have had a miscarriage or that are struggling with infertility or have had an abortion to not look at it as one conversation but to talk to them about how you want to have a subsequent conversation so that so that the the broader picture can be dealt with but not not always you know right at that moment and so then if you have multiple encounters with someone those initial encounters can be um not necessarily what we'd expect. I think of of our our own dear dear priest friend Father Blake, who at, at one point was our pastor, and now he's he's studying, so he's not here anymore. Um, but he was with us for um, three of our four losses, wow. and I remember at one of our losses, he imme- like we texted him, he immediately came to the house. Um, and he's formerly opera trained. And in fact, he stores his piano at our house. I play and, and I'm wanting to teach our daughter. And so um, he came over and sat down at his piano in our home and he just he just played and sang. And just, you know, I remember sitting on the couch weeping uh, at the loss of, of the child that yeah. was still in my body that I had yet to pass. And being so nourished and fed by the love of this spiritual father who is giving us the gift of music to just communicate what words could not in that moment. And um, and another Mm. one of our losses, he came and my husband has been so strong. And even though these losses have, have wounded him deeply, he's wanted to, you know, be strong and put together for me. And I remember when Father Blake came, Father himself just started weeping. He couldn't hold it in. Um, And then my husband did. And it was like the tears of Father Blake are what gave my husband permission to be vulnerable and, and shed his own tears. So I think for priests who are wondering, you know, how do I respond? It's to, it's, it's being with, it's embracing what father, uh, what, what uh, Pope Francis has spoken of a culture of encounter where you're encountering the other, where they're at and um, listening or offering something that's life giving amidst a difficult time. Mm. And, and to not also be afraid to ask the tough questions. You know, I remember on another occasion, father said to me when, again, he always would immediately come when it, whenever he learned of these losses. And we had three in a row over a period of just under a year. Um, I remember he's him saying, what lies is Satan saying to you at this time? And I remember there were, I was having these various thoughts going through my mind that I didn't even want to voice to my husband. Yeah. But now father is like, what lies is Satan saying to you? And I was like, I can't lie to a priest. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised, Stephanie. So, You'd be surprised what people can say to priests and get away with <laughs> Um. But then, you know, I, I asked, my husband was there, but I asked him to come closer and hold my hand. And then I, I, I answered father's question, you know, in the presence of my husband and father. Uh, but there was such a freedom mm. that suddenly came out in being asked the question and answering the question. Um, also for our priests, therefore, to not be afraid 
Therefore, when he asked what lies I was being told by Satan, to not be afraid to communicate truth, even if it's a hard truth. And so that's in the realm of infertility, where couples are, can be so broken up about either not being able to conceive or not being able to sustain a pregnancy. And so either way, there's no child in their arms at the end of the day, and they're grieving that, for the priest to stand firm that the desire they have for children is good, but that doesn't mean just any way of getting a child they're going to endorse, you know? So mm -hmm. to not cave and start to say, well, maybe if with certain parameters you did IVF by not making too many embryos, it would be okay, when really it wouldn't be okay, you know? To, to understand that kidnapping is not an ethical way to achieve a child, and there are <laughs> other ways we can achieve a child like IVF that aren't ethical either um, and in our desire to minister to others and help others to to hold firm to the truth and not to waver or or or, or water down beliefs because they're hard to live through uh, or to live out but then to be able to provide people alternatives so you know there's the in in the world of infertility there's the wonderful you know um world of of restorative reproductive medicine which is often called napro technology or or mm. um um there's the creighton method in response to infertility um and knowing your fertility uh but i have a doctor for example that you know tests me for progesterone and because i've had low progesterone for five out of six pregnancies i've been on progesterone um which has not kept all my babies alive because we've lost four but it's kept this one alive that i'm currently pregnant with it's kept my two-year-old daughter alive so, um, and then our priest friend, Father Blake, because he has ministered to other couples with infertility or miscarriage experience, has encouraged them to talk to me. And now I've connected them to my doctor who's prioritized seeing these other patients. Mm. And so now there's other couples that are getting help yeah, by God. someone who's addressing mm. their underlying infertility issue rather than masking it with something like IVF. Yeah. So. That's oh what wow! That, no, that's that's great, and I think this is something that's so important to to point out that there are there are solutions, and there's also the, the just the witness of people who, especially in the area of infertility, have come to understand as as much of a cross as it is to they've come to understand something of God's plan for them and a way that they're going to give life and maybe in other ways, um, and then for those those couples who uh, have have faced miscarriage and I mean I I can't count how many I know I I literally could not possibly try to count for you the number of couples who I know who have suffered at least one miscarriage and just what a what a burden that is for them but for them to know that there are others out there. And this, I think, might be one of the great gifts of in the midst of a very chaotic world and a lot of things that are wrong and a culture of death and everything. One thing that I've seen a lot of is a much more open conversation surrounding that topic of pregnancy loss. Something that mm -hmm. I think a lot of people for for decades were afraid to talk about. But now it's it's something that it's okay to share. It's okay to talk about. It's okay to acknowledge that pain, and it's actually okay to expect that someone would suffer some pain. Whereas before, it was, oh, too bad that happened. Let's move on. Let's never talk about this ever again, which doesn't help either, <laughs> right? Right. But now here we have this. I think a much better culture where we're able to actually address that. Well, for people to know that they're not alone, and that there are people even right in their own community, especially at church. There's people mm -hmm. who have been through this. Uh, there are people who are willing to talk about it. There are people who uh, care for you in the midst of that of that pain. 
Mm -hmm. And when we're vulnerable, it, it breeds more vulnerability. So, um, Obviously, people, you know, in certain settings might not want to share too much or to the degree that they've found um, healing might, um, you know, if they're still struggling through something, it might not be the best time to share. But if if they're in a place where they feel that sharing will benefit more the other party than themselves, so the sharing isn't a therapy session, but is to to somehow breathe life into someone else through your own experience that can be very life-giving. And so for myself, even long before I'd experienced miscarriage, so many people consulted me just as a pro-life speaker when they were miscarrying, wondering what do we do? Like, do we bury what we've collected, yeah. even though it was very early, you know? So I had already thought through a lot of this stuff before I was ever in that situation. So that when when we lost our babies, you know, we knew to baptize, we knew to preserve the blood, we knew to have a contact the church and have a funeral and a burial. Um, you know, we named our babies. We we've been very open about our babies so that I feel like I'm in a healthy place to be able to speak about them. Yeah. So that even down to being at the grocery store, when people will see my toddler and and now that I'm pregnant, will say oh, is this your second baby? Or before when it was just my toddler, is she your first? I would always say, actually, no, my first is in heaven. Then she came along. And the number of people that responded by then telling me that they have children in heaven too. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like they've said this for the first time to a stranger because the stranger had acknowledged their yeah. own child. Or when people will say, oh, this will be your second. I say, actually, no, it's my sixth, but I have four in heaven. And... And then people will start to share. I mean, one woman even shared with me the loss of a, a child. Her, her son died in his 30s. But it was like she felt that she could speak of him because someone else had spoken of their loss. And and there was this brief moment of connection and sympathy and, and concern for the others. So, um, yeah, God God works through all things, even our suffering, yeah. and especially our suffering. You know, it's, it's good that you point out the idea of naming the child and also burying uh, whatever is there, whatever remains there are. Um, this is something I, I don't think that we've always done a great job of as a church, uh, but acknowledging that um, so many people, if they're going to bury remains, it's in their backyard or something, but you're seeing more and more, thank God, there's cemeteries, Catholic cemeteries in particular, that are setting aside a space for children who have died in miscarriage. And I think there's something very powerful about that, to to recognize that pain and to to give it a place and to give it a dignity. Uh, as as much as we we don't like the idea of of putting ourselves through grief, to just recognize that this is a reality, and it's something that should be honored. Uh, I think that's a tremendous gift that is starting to come slowly. It's the church, so we go slow, <laughs> but it's it's right. starting to happen more and more. Well, absolutely. And as we acknowledge the tragedy of the loss of life from miscarriage, children who have died naturally through no fault of our own then the effect is we're acknowledging the existence of the child in the womb. So all the more we should be grieving the loss of children killed purposefully mm -hmm. through abortion. So even anything we do in response to miscarriage is speaking a message to everyone else also about abortion, that that there's loss of life here. Obviously, the, the loss is very different. As I say, one's natural, one's purposeful. But it's, it's helping get that message out that this is life made in God's image mm. that is worthy of our love, attention, and our sorrow when, when that life is no more. Amen. So, Stephanie, besides 
people should go out and buy My Body for You, a pro-life message for a post-rural world, Emmaus through, uh, available through Emmaus Road Publishing at EmmausRoad.org. Besides checking out your website, loveunleasheslife.com. Uh, last words. You know, I think for everyone to think about getting more involved locally in their community, I mean, I think since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we're seeing at a state by state level, the debate is still raging, you know, so the success of the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, was good, uh, but the battle of that was one but there's a lot more battles in the war overall and we're seeing some states increasing their protections for the pre-born but other states like ohio recently you know creating a constitutional amendment to to broaden support for and access to abortion and so to remember at a local level we ought to be trying to make a difference you know in our communities supporting the local pregnancy care center encouraging our pastors and priests to preach on the issue, being a source of education and information in our churches, being a source of healing. You know, one of the things I write about in my book is a, a prayer service that I developed uh, for aborted children and how churches can just kind of take this template up and model it and um, and it be a source of healing for people who are, are working through that type of loss. So, uh, but certainly uh, prayer is is essential. This is a spiritual battle. We need to pray for the conversion of especially uh, the abortion doctors and abortion rights movement um, and, and for the protections of the children. But once we pray, then we need to act. And so, yeah, it's my hope that the book can can be a way of further equipping and inspiring people to act well and engage wisely. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much for your work, for what you're doing. Thank you for joining and, uh, us. Yeah, for your contributions here. It's it's so powerful to read. And great to meet you. Great, great to be able to talk Thank to you today. You. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. I think she's great. Yeah, this episode was a pleasure. Um, it, it was, I don't know. You know, I'm, I, I think I've said it before that, you know, I go into every episode and I essentially learn something new every episode. Yeah. Um, but but there are certain episodes that kind of move the heart very much where you actually want to change something um, and this was one of those episodes yeah yeah you know I'm, I'm grateful to talk to her about this stuff because you know I'll tell you yeah. as, as a priest it's hard sometimes to talk about these things and to know yeah. exactly what the line is when am I supposed to say something when do I need to let people come to me with the with the problem right. or with the with the concern right. And it can be hard to navigate that and to navigate it well. So it's great to hear from her and to get that perspective. I really like that she's willing to just say, Father, this is what you should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I need that. Yeah, no. It's fantastic. No. Yeah, and and she's so clearly the – she's like the dynamic duo of – she's clearly incredibly intelligent. You know, oh, like yeah. she's – she her, her – um, her application of solid logic to this problem is so evident. Yeah. Um, but also, um, she's clearly a very faithful woman who's super compassionate. Um, and that I, I don't know if it's an uncommon, you know, um, duo to have, but I but I think it is. I think it is. I'll just say that well, I think it's uncommon. I think the compassionate side often gets hidden. If you're really yeah. if you're really good at doing something or communicating something one way, teaching something a particular way, logicking, <laughs> that's not really a word, but right. like working yeah, through, but, through but something. Yeah, but we can use it. Yeah, why not? You might not be great at the the more human touch, like the subtlety that needs to be kind of gentle 
and and open yeah. you know that's that's sometimes a hard balance to strike she just strikes it right. so beautifully and then her own witness exactly. you know it's just as as a mom Ugh. um I loved before we started recording. <laughs> she's like, I'm huge. Look at this. And she's just talking oh about gosh, her yeah, own pregnancy was... and how, firstly, you just see the joy that she has. She's so excited about this baby yeah. that's coming. Uh, it's awesome. So folks, pray for pray for Stephanie and her husband. They're expecting another baby. And uh, it's what, 10 weeks sure, away? Something like that? Yeah. I mean, she said she was, she said 29 weeks, she said? I, I don't actually know what weeks mean in pregnancy. I, yeah. I need months. I don't, I just don't. I can't. I can't remember like stuff. Father, I can't do math are, that quickly. Weeks are weeks are groupings of seven yeah, days rah. at a time. <laughs> Thank you. Oh man. Well, anyway, uh, folks can pick up your book. Welcome, my body for you: a pro-life message for a post-Roe world by Stephanie Gray Connors, uh, published by Emmaus Road. And uh, we've got the link in the show notes. But when you go, did you know that you can get a fifteen percent discount by using the promo code? For you, fifteen. That's F O R Y O U one five. When you go to Emmaus Road Publishing or to the St. Paul Center, click the link in the show notes below, and you can get your copy of My Body for You: A Pro Life Message for a Post Row World. 